0: Romans chapter twelve. Kind of curious, how do you handle when people hurt you intentionally? Like they go after your character, they give you a raw business deal, they gossip about you, say some things that are unkind, untrue. How do you do with that? That that works okay with you? Um, what happens when someone spreads a lie about you, and your reputation just gets like run over by an eighteen-wheeler? Chances are, if you're human, that uh, being wrong can bring out the worst in you. Seems like that's almost part of human nature. Whether well, you've been treated unjustly, uh, cheated of something, it's interesting. There's a guy; he's a late actor, author, humorist, guy by the name of Will Rogers, and he was the guy that said, "I have never met a man that I didn't like." I was thinking, like, maybe Will didn't get out much, you know? Maybe he just didn't meet a lot of folks. Maybe he didn't meet some of the folks that i met. Like, for instance, uh, what about your drill inspector when you are in Marine boot camp? Maybe Will didn't meet that guy. That guy was just living misery, right? And he made your life, oh, man, that was tough hanging around him. But um, maybe there's that person, just by me starting to talk about this, you've got, oh, the brother-in-law, okay, or... Or maybe there was a parent really hard on you, did some bad stuff to you, mean, hurt you. Even now, you feel like you're still bleeding a little bit on something like this. What about at school? For some of you, like you're in school right now, and you've got someone, and they're like, they're making your life hard. But chances are, everyone could think of like some scenes in a hallway or a locker room like, Oh my goodness, that was painful. It made my life unbearably difficult. So what do you do with the idea that someone is out to get you and to make your life miserable? How do you overcome that? You know, if you've been a Christian for any time, you've probably heard that we're supposed to overcome evil with good. I think that's what Jesus wants us to do. But really, honestly, how in the world is that possible? How do you overcome evil with good? You need to be able to answer that question. If you can't, uh, you're going to find your development is going to be stunted. That's why this passage in the Bible is so critical to your development and my development as well. Look what he says, beginning in verse 17. If you want to learn how to overcome evil with good, first of all, you're going to have to learn to not retaliate. Look what he says, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Does that fit with your natural reaction? Probably not. Every cell in our body is kind of oriented and programmed for survival. If a ball suddenly comes shooting at your face, you try to protect yourself, right? If you're about ready to fall, your arms and your hands immediately extend because you're trying to break that fall. We're built in for survival. We react someone attacks us, our natural inclination isn't to like, oh, that's wonderful, you know, come on, bring it on. No, we have a tendency to want to react to that, to get back. And yet, this text is telling us that retaliation is prohibited for a believer's response to people who are trying to do evil toward us. But that's pretty hard to do. Think about people's selfishness or their greed or their backstabbing and uh, their lying words or maybe you're a business owner and someone's not paid you or they're using information against you, how in the world do you handle that? And this text says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. We have to learn to not retaliate. Now, I, I can see it. Some of you are thinking, but you know what, Grant? I want to be real biblical in my life. And I am one of those eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of guys. That's in the Bible, isn't it? And that's kind of how I live. You hit me, I'm going to hit you with interest, right? You say bad things about me, you don't know who you're messing with. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? In fact, that's written three different times in the Old Testament. But you need to know something. That actually pertains to civil justice, not personal revenge. What God was seeking to do is that, that when justice was being meted out, that there was never to be a punishment that it was in excess to the crime. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It doesn't, however, deal with the issues of personal revenge, which as a believer... As those who have been united with Christ, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and through, no longer conformed to this world, now being transformed by the renewing of our mind, living unholy sacrifices, we're being asked through the strength of Christ to learn to not retaliate. For some folks, this this is so utterly difficult. We could call them justice junkies. These are the people, and, and don't raise your hand if you're one of them, but you think this way. It's like... I don't want to let it go until everyone knows what really happened, right? And we're going to get it all worked out, and I'm going to be shown to be right. You know those kind of people? And they're just driving and insistent that they're made to know and right, and everybody's got to know about it. Friends, we need to learn to leave it with God. You know who knows about the real situation? God knows, and he's just. And in case you're thinking that, like, well, the Apostle Paul just wrote this, but, It didn't really apply to him. Actually, you've got to think, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he's penning these words, think of what he went through. All those beatings, being stoned, being maligned by his own countrymen. They were always seeking to assassinate his character. And yet, he says, if you want real insight into spiritual maturity, what the love of Christ looks like flowing out of your life, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. If you want to overcome evil with good, you and I, we need to learn to not retaliate, and it goes against everything in our flesh. Let me give you a second. We need to live right before others. See what he says in verse 17? Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, but respect. Honor what is right in the sight of all men. Live well. Do right. Do what is good. Demonstrate and manifest evil. Integrity in your life. It is showing that no matter how you're being treated, you have a bedrock foundation of faith in Christ, and you are the same man or the same woman, no matter what's coming at you. You live right. And he goes on to say, look at verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, you are to be at peace with all men. You are to seek peace and pursue it even though there are people in your life that are at war with you and are trying to create havoc in your life. Now, please don't take this verse as a kind of like a membership card to be a Christian doormat. Okay? It says, notice verse 18, if possible. That tells us there are going to be situations where it's going to actually be Impossible. There are going to be times where it will not be possible to have peace. There will be times where perhaps it's a legal situation or some family relationship where someone just got the bent to always fight and will not reconcile. It may not be possible to have peace. The Bible, when you come to this passage, is not advocating peace at any price. It just doesn't matter. It just got to be about peace. He says, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Are you working at it? Are you giving everything you got? Or are you just getting passive on this? No. As far as it depends on you, you are actively seeking peace. You want to be at peace with all men. If you're thinking like, huh, well, great, my conflict's with a woman, so I'm, I'm exempt on this one, right? Actually, that, that's an all-inclusive term. All of us. Men, women, you want to be at peace. Now, think about that. How many of you just in your family, and we actually did this on the first service, and I was actually surprised. How many of you, in your extended family, have, like, people that really hardly talk with one another or they're, they're distant or, I mean, it's tense if they even have to be around each other And say, house? I'm in that camp. I've got family members like that. How many of others? Whoa! We're almost all in the... Do you see that? We're all in the same club. How much different could our families be if the gospel was reigning in the hearts of people and this verse was a reality? How about at where you work at? How much different relationships would be? you know how many church splits have taken place Because Romans chapter 12 has been ignored. I remember being a long time ago at a pastor's conference. And there were these pastors, and they were pastors of little itty-bitty churches. And in talking with them, they were actually talking about that their churches were formed in their past because of splits. There was something that they had split over. And they were like just very little itty-bitty churches. And some of these pastors didn't even know what the issues were that they fought about so hard about to actually split. You know what that is? That is pathetic. But yet, guess what? We're the Christians we have trouble even following the text that the Lord has given us? You see, we have to live right before others. We need to seek peace, and we're going to work hard at it. And so that's what we're doing. We're not going to do this, and this is, a, this is I'll just kind of, this is the Christian way to get out of this, quote-unquote Christian thing. I uh, heard about the reading, be in peace with all people, but I don't like her or so her, 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 so, I, so I'm going to give them a silent treatment, right? And you do just that. Or you glare at them, and you're like, and you make kind of mean things. You can just tell. You know, when people are upset and when mouth gets all pursed and their eyes, like trying to shoot darts in you. You know what I'm talking about? But I didn't say anything, right? I follow on the letter of the law, but friends, you have violated the spirit completely. The heart of a believer is to seek peace, to live right. You want to really overcome evil, the bad things, the evil things that have been done to you, and you don't know want to do it good? Then you need to live right before others. Uh, remember it's, if possible, some people they're just that's their lifestyle, misery, and it make other people's lives misery. There may not be a lot done other than God's utter transformation in their heart. But as far as it's possible to you, be at peace with them. Let me give you a third. you really want to overcome evil with good, then you need to leave vengeance with God. Verse 19 is an extremely difficult verse. Look what Paul has written. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Direct quote from Deuteronomy 32:35. Divine retribution, God says, is in my court. You and I are never allowed to be the Avenger. Now, I know that a lot of our movies, it's all about, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. Westerns, sci-fi stuff, right? And all looks good, we kind of cheer, the bad guy finally gets where he's coming, right? The guy took revenge. This text says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm going to take care of it. Um, Don't think that vengeance is evil. Actually, vengeance is a form of of justice, Just punishment is when the severity of the punishment equals the severity of the crime. When that punishment has been executed or meted out, then vengeance has been accomplished. And God says, I'm going to take care of that. It's not up to you to take out personal vengeance. Now, God is going to take out vengeance. Sometimes he does it directly. You need to know that the passage that immediately follows the text we're looking at today, does anybody know what it deals with? Government. Civil authorities. And God oftentimes meets out vengeance, punishment, through the government. Civil authorities, state authorities, courts. In fact, look at verse 4 in chapter 13. Just have kind of a preview of coming attractions. He says, when he's speaking about the government and rulers, he says... For it is a minister of God, verse 4, to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It has the power to punish. It bears the sword. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So God is the one who is personally going to bring about vengeance. He is the avenger. He will punish all evil. And when it says, going back to our text in verse 19, leave room for the wrath of God, God is the one who will punish wickedness and evil. Why does he do that? Because he is holy. And he loves holiness and righteousness. And any violation of that must receive justice. And he says, I am going to take care of it. Now, sometimes, you see that leave room for the wrath of God? This, and you probably heard this. It's sometimes presented this way, kind of like it's like the idea is like, you know what? What you need to do is you just need to let God take care of it. You just leave it alone, and God knows how to hurt those people's lives a lot more and a lot better than you can. You know, it's kind of the idea that, yeah, you can't do much, but let God tear them apart. And you're kind of like, yeah, God's going to get them, and I like that. Friends, that is not the heart of the passage, nor is it the heart of God. What it is is a saying God is saying, you let me take care of matters of justice. I'll either personally deal with it, I'll bring government to bear, but I will eventually right every wrong and bring justice to bear. Now let's talk about a few um, this verse here, because there's questions that are surfacing in a lot of your minds. One thing I want to bring to your attention is that this is not a proof text for pacifism. Pacifism has the idea that any violence, including war, is unjustifiable. Under any circumstances, you could never have any sort of violence, no war, and that all disputes must be settled in a peaceful manner. That's pacifism. But that's what Paul is writing about here is about personal vengeance, right? God says, vengeance is mine. He's not writing about a policy or a foreign policy policy of a nation on how they're going to handle themselves. These are instructions for individuals who have been targeted by evil deeds of other people. Let me give you another. Um, furthermore, this does not mean that if you are under personal attack or someone is like you're in your home and someone breaks in and they personally attack you that you can't defend yourself. You can't like, oh, I think I read a verse from here that I'm not supposed to do anything. Just stab at me. No, you, that's, that doesn't make sense, Right? You can. If someone is, like, in your house, and it's, like, in the middle of the night, and they break in, you don't have to say, as they're taking all your stuff, hey, we also have a media room, and we've got some electronics you probably would like. Why don't you help yourself with that? No. That's, that's not rational. That's not what this text is saying. It's also like if, if someone comes in, and they're, they actually are attacking you or your wife or your kids, that you can't defend yourself? No, you simply can't. But what he's saying, it's in matters of personal vengeance, like in heated arguments or malicious lawsuits or um, deliberate slander or dirty politics, whether it's work or school, your neighborhood, or worse yet, in the church. We're going to trust God to work these things out, and we're going to express a whole different approach to these matters. We're going to mindful that God may do it, address it on his own. He may involve government, like we saw in Romans 13, 4, but we understand that we're going to leave vengeance with God. Now, how about we talk about the 10,000 pound elephant that's sitting in this room right here? What are we to do with the militant Islamic terrorist group ISIS? What's familiar? Everybody in the world, almost everybody, has seen this picture. This is a clip from a video. Don't worry, I'm not going to show the video we all know what this is. This video was recently shortly. Do you know what it's titled? It has a title. It was titled A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross. Despite the fact that we may have some folks, higher over higher level government, that do not actually seem to acknowledge what this video is about, they have tried to make it crystal clear this is what we're after. A message signed with blood to the nation of the cross. And shortly after the scene, these Islamic terrorists behead all 21 of these Coptic Egyptian Christians. Radical Muslims, in essence, say this. You must believe like I believe, or I will kill you. That's how it works. And they don't give you a lot of time to think about it. You must believe what I believe, or I will kill you. Don't think that these guys are open to... Discussion and let's talk about this and deliberate? No. The Christians, authentic Christianity actually states this. I really want you to believe from the depth of my heart to know Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, to the extent that I am willing to die for you. That's Christianity. We will suffer persecution... Now, obviously, we'll defend ourselves all possible, but we will undergo it for our faith life, for the honor of Christ, and that we desperately want people to know the living God. Now, we're going to see this in Romans 13. God has given governments the responsibility to deal with these sort of issues, and governments very likely will. But friends, you need to get ready. Right now, we're like, These are scenes that are happening around the world, but they're starting to happen here. and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. God wants us to know as Christians, vengeance is mine. Don't ever lose sight like, whoa, it's all out of control and it's out of God's control. No, he's going to bring justice to bear, whether he does it to the government, powers, world powers, or he deals with it directly. You see, right now we're in the age of grace. Right now, God is being gracious. This is an opportunity when God does bring wrath and justice and judgment to bear. It is always meant to bring brokenness in the individual so they'll trust in Christ. But let me be very clear: the day of the Lord is coming. Jesus will return. You've got a hundred percent truth that that is going to happen. There's no way that Jesus is not going to return. And bring about retribution for those who have rejected him. But this text reminds us that we need to leave vengeance with him. You want to overcome evil with good? We've got to leave vengeance with God. And believe that he indeed is going to take care of it. And finally, if you really want to overcome evil with good, you have to look how Christ-likeness can bring change. Look at verse twenty and twenty one. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. And you're like, what in the world? What is that all about? Huh? And like you read this and you're like, I think that's one of the great mysteries of God. What what possibly could he be talking about here? Enemy hungry, feed him, okay, well, get that drink, okay, but the heaping the burning coals on his head. Some people think like, well, the more you do good to people, the more God has to bring pain and difficulty and wrath on their life. Kind of the, you know, the retribution sort of thing. I don't think that's what he's after. In fact, this is a direct quote from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. And what it's speaking of is a ritual that was practiced in ancient Egypt. So familiar was it it, this practice that they had, that it's actually recorded by Solomon as something that was commonly understood. This particular Egyptian ritual, pretty interesting. So if someone came to a place where they had wrong thinking and they had done something wrong, and they were going to demonstrate that they were broken and repentant of what they did and how they thought, they would take this pan, put some ashes and charcoal in it, the hot charcoals, they put a towel on their head and they would put this pan on their head, and they would hold it with their hands, and they would walk around their little village or town or the community, and it symbolized the burning away of their wrong or their evil thinking, and like they were, they had a change of heart. And it would be like ultra noticeable. Like, could you imagine if someone was walking around here and they were doing that? It'd be like everyone would notice. We would know like, Either something's wrong, or they're repentant, or weird, or something. Right? That would be very unusual. But it sent a clear message. You see, that's what God's after. God wants his people so transformed by Christ that we actually represent Christ's likeness to those who do evil. We'll give them drink. We'll give them food. It's all speaking of a heart that wants them to know the love of God because ultimately we don't want them to face wrath. What do we want? We want them to know the love and the grace of the Savior like we have come to know that's why we would do this. We would demonstrate Christ' likeness. And we can see real change that takes place in a person's lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we're buying steak dinners for bank robbers. Right? Okay? But it does mean that those who treat us poorly through the power of Christ we are going to try to treat them well. Now, if you're going like, Ooh, this is hard. Do you got an illustration on that? Like, Has anybody ever even tried this before? Actually, I would like you to think about King David. You know, before he was king, there was another king in place. A really lovely man. Do you happen to know his name? Saul, that's right. Big, tall guy, stully-looking guy. Super insecure, right? Had all sorts of issues. And David... Kind of as a young man, kills Goliath, and people start singing songs about him killing the tens of thousands, and that was more than he had killed. And what happens when you meet the insecure person, man? they got to destroy you, right? Because, after all, it's all about me and me looking good. And Saul goes after David, not just personally, like, throwing spears at him while David's, like, singing him songs and playing on his guitar, but actually sends his army, and he accompanies the army at times and tries to hunt him down. And do you know that not once, but twice... David is in a position to kill Saul, like Saul just lay there sleeping, and David doesn't. You might think, like, well, this seems rather God ordained that God would set it up that David could kill Saul because he's right there, and Saul is after, is hunting him down, and David doesn't. And it's recorded in 1 Samuel 24:17. Saul said to David, "You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt." wickedly with you. You see, when we respond with grace to those who do evil to us, even the evil person sees it at times. And that was the case for Saul. Now, his sorrow was short-lived. He quickly forgot that. But it does show you the effect of a gracious life in the face of evil. And after all, isn't that what the text says, verse 21? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, You see, we were going to seek to honor God and his word more than our feelings. That's going to take some maturity in Christ, because we're oftentimes just driven by our feelings. I want to tell you something else about the reconciliation and when we seek this. Reconciliation still maintains boundaries. Um, For instance, let's say you come from an abusive home and your parent was an alcoholic, and they really haven't changed their ways. You don't have to, like, leave your kids there for a weekend because oh, I'm going to try to be nice to them, so I think I'll leave. No, that's, that doesn't make sense, does it? Like, for instance, if you were uh, part of the crew that takes the offering, but you were, like, helping yourself, like, dude, this will be really helpful the weekend. You know what? We're not going to have you do the offering anymore. you know why? You can't be trusted. We'll find some other place for you to serve, but it's not going to be that. If I give, if I speak to you in confidence and I tell you some, some issues that I'm trying to really work with, and you, and you, in turn, send it out on Instagram to like 620 of your best friends. I'm probably not going to want to share things like that with you, right? I'm going to uh, I'll pray for you, and I want God's best for you, but we're going to have to build trust up again. You need to know that we have to, at times, put boundaries, but we do so for even the benefit of the other person so they don't continue in their sinful patterns. And so what we are called to do we're called to forgive we're called to demonstrate a Christ-likeness a calm, a resolve, a composure a God-assured kindness to people even who do wrong to us and you see verse 21 where he says do not be overcome by evil that word overcome is a military word for overpower and you are going to be overpowered by one force or another Either you will be overpowered by evil and you're going to try to return evil for evil and you're going to get the experience of like putting like gas on fire or you're going to be overcome by the grace of God and good and you're going to experience a sense of freedom and release and Christ-likeness and who knows how God may not use that in the life of another individual. You see, when you and I return evil for evil, and that's really what our flesh wants to do, that's bad spiritual math. Evil just simply multiplies when you do that. What we're to do, friends, is we're to be imitators of Christ. We are to follow God. We are to demonstrate not only that we understand and know salvation and believe in Christ, but that the life of Christ is being lived out in us, even in the face of our enemies. The great African-American scientist George Washington Carver is gathered Every time I read about him, I am so impressed. I mean, this guy, what a a brilliant mind, and what an amazing Christian. To read about his devotional life was just astounding. We don't even know when he was born, that he was born into slavery. We don't even actually know the date, the year, none of that. We do know that he died in 1943. He said a lot of profound things, and I want to share one of them with you. He once said, I will never let another man ruin my life by making me hate him. Just let that sink in. I will never let another man ruin my life by making me hate him. You see, vengeance kind of has this tantalizing whisper. It says, you let me take care of this. Ah, you'll feel so much better when you... You actually hurt this individual, but friends, it never works that way. Vengeance can't heal wounds. Only grace can. You see, we overcome evil with good by seeing God as our defender and our lives as a testimony of his grace. In her book, Unbroken, Laura Hildebrand writes of Louis Zamperini. This uh, book has actually been turned into a movie. In fact, it's. recently out. I think some of you have actually seen it. Uh, I've not seen the movie. I read the book. Uh, It's really, it's it's the the story of an amazing American. This Louis Zamperini. 1936, Germany Olympics. He's a 5,000 meter finalist for the USA. And then, not too long after that, he not only is in World War II, but he becomes a prisoner of war. Let me give you a few scenes from Louis Zamperini's life. On May 27th, 1943, Zamperini and his crew are, fly out of o- Oahu in search of a plane that has gone down. They are in a plane called the Green Hornet, which was plagued with problems, and they just like absolutely did not want to be in this plane. And sure enough, 800 miles out, one of the engines goes out, and their plane crashes at sea. Three of the men survive. And all they have is a little life raft. They climb in this little life raft, Zamperini and another guy, are the only two that make it. They actually, these two guys survived 45, for, excuse me, 47 days at sea on a little life raft. It set a world record. Their time at sea was horrific. They were confronting sharks, and the book talks about these experiences of beating these sharks. They were literally trying to jump onto this raft. They faced starvation because they didn't have any food and dementia. But friends, the real battle began when they were captured 47 days later by the Japanese and put in the notorious Sugamo prison as POWs. In this prison, there was a particular guard, Watanabe, who was just Absolutely vicious. The Americans who had been captured actually gave nicknames for all of their captors. But this Watanabe, they called the bird, and he made this uh, Zamperini's life utterly miserable. For two years, he was continuously beaten, maligned, torn up, assaulted. He had no idea what was would be coming. He, it just it, it surprise him. They did the most horrific things that you could imagine to a human. They did to Louis Zamperini, especially when they found out that he was the Olympian. In fact, Watanabe, the bird, made Zamperini prisoner number one and just vented wrath on him for two straight years. We had no idea what happened to Louis Zamperini. The government actually declared him dead. I even told his family as such. but much to their surprise, in 1945, when the war ended, though Zamperini had been declared dead, he arrives in America. And there was a rush of publicity, this man who was thought to be dead, this Olympic hero. He's alive. And yet, his life quickly descended into a new self-made prison, a prison of alcoholism and bitterness. And the book describes... Night after night, all these horrific nightmares that he would have of the bird attacking him and how he wanted vengeance and, and saw himself murdering his captor. And he lives in this state of utter torment and alcoholism is just driving him down. His life is being obliterated. And this is his wife. In 1949, his wife begs him to go to this Billy Graham crusade in California and With great reluctance. Like, I don't want to go to that. He goes. And while there, this amazing change takes place. He hears the gospel. And he puts his trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And I'd like you to hear the words of Laura Hildebrand as she's writing of these experiences of Louis. I don't even think Laura Hildebrand is a Christian. I don't know. But this is what she writes. When Louis thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save his life. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. A year after trusting Christ, Zamperini flies back to Japan, to the prison camp, to meet with his former captors. And in, his, in their presence, he actually forgives them and speaks of his testimony of how he has come to trust Jesus as his savior. So moved were some of his former Japanese captors that treated him so poorly that several of them actually became Christians. But Zipari specifically wanted to see the bird, Watanabe. But he was told that um, the bird had committed suicide, and when he heard this, in Louis's own words, something strange happened in him. There was a sense of compassion. It was forgiveness. He called it beautiful. It was effortless. It was complete. And for Zamparini, the war was over. That was a change that had taken place. Well, let me fast forward all the way till 1996. Louis Zamperini receives a phone call that literally sends him into shock. The bird, Watanabe, happens to still be alive. Couldn't believe it. A few months later, Louis sits down at his desk, and he writes this letter to his former captor, and I'd like to read that excerpt to you. To Matsushiro Watanabe, As a result of my prisoner of war experience, Under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1950. I asked then about you and was told that you probably had committed Harry Carey, which is slain for committing suicide, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you. And now would hope that you also would become a Christian. Louis Zamperini. That was in 1996 he wrote that letter. In 1998, Louis Zamperini was asked to come to Japan. To carry a leg in the Olympic torch, uh, the, uh, the holding Olympic torch, to carry it a leg and to run past the, the very prison camp where he had been tormented for two years. Zamperini agreed to do this, and he made a request and asked if he could meet the bird to deliver the letter that he had written. When he shows up in Japan, even though Watanabe had said prior that he would meet with him, when actually Zamperini shows up, he spits out No. And never did meet with him. Zamperini eventually gives the letter to a person who said he would make sure that Watanabe got it. We don't know whatever happened. The bird dies in 2003. But I'd like you to watch, listen to this closing scene. January 22nd, 1998. The torch is about ready to be passed on to him. The snow is sifting gently by. Louis Zamperini is four days short of his 81st birthday. It was time. Well, he extended his hand, and in it was placed the Olympic torch. His legs could no longer reach and push as they once had, but they were still sure beneath him. He began running. All he could see in every direction were smiling Japanese faces. There were children in hooded coats, men who had once worked beside the POW slaves, civilians clapping and cheering, and two columns of Japanese soldiers parting to let him pass. Louis ran through the place where the cages had once held him, where a black eyed man had crawled inside him. But the cages were long gone, and so was the bird. There was no trace of them here among the voices, the fallen snow, and the old and joyful man running. See, we overcome evil with good by seeing God as our defender and our lives. As a testimony of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of scripture. Lord, you know apart from the gospel and apart from our relationship with Christ, that which you've asked is impossible for us. Yet, what is impossible for man is possible for you. So Lord, would this be the reality of our lives? Some of us have been hurt greatly. But we need your grace and strength to not only experience forgiveness and release, but that our lives could be said, we have overcame evil with good, the good of your grace. So this we pray and ask in Jesus' name.